good morning, North River. Uh, we are John and Pam Dakota, and we were asked to come and share a bit uh, during this series that we're, we're having on generosity. So you're going to get to hear from us today. Uh, thank you for the opportunity. I serve as a volunteer uh, elder here at North River. I'm also on the board and particularly on the finance committee. So this topic has very little interest to me, as you can imagine. Um, and if, if you missed it, then let's just give some quick stats, okay? 56% uh, of our money goes to cover staff, people, people that we believe are here to help support you. About 21% goes to property, and that has been uh, declining. And the good news is we've paid down about $2 million on the property over the last few years, so we're making good progress. We want to pay it off. Uh, another 10% goes to missions. So that essentially leaves North River and goes to help things that we do all over the place. So there is a, uh, a video that, if you missed it, uh, John and Vivian Haynes gave. So I encourage you to take a look at that. Um, North, I, we are one of the, the original members of North River. North River has a very long history of what I consider to be remarkable generosity. And the only thing I know to do is say thank you. Because so much of what you experience when you're here has been a product of people from prior years making sacrifices, donating, volunteering, and, and with a vision towards something like what you experience now. So thank you. Um, my hope is, in this, in this little discussion, that we're going to do a couple of things. I've been in church most of my life. And when the topic of finances comes up, my experience is typically that there's an unwritten should hanging in the air, right? I should give. And maybe there's some truth to that. I hope that over the month of November, we can shift it more from a should to a want to. I also hope that, that we can dispense with some of the awkwardness that we feel talking about finances at church. It's a part of life. Uh, it's normal. It, it, we can't get away from it. And so having a healthy spiritual perspective about it is really important. And it's just a part of being a, a church family. So that's my second hope. Um, as many of you know, I have spent about the last 30 years as a financial advisor. And so, uh, you know, I thought it was a good idea for me to share some of those observations. Thank you for asking. And so, uh, but before we, we dive into some of those details, uh, we're going to take a look at some foundational thoughts. I hope I did that right. I did. Okay. Better than I thought. Um, my apologies to the brain scientists in the room. <laughs> this is a gross oversimplification of, of our limbic system. And uh, it is important to think about how we process things. Because when, when the things that we experience uh, land in that little thing called the amygdala, that's our fight and flight response, right? So it's hard for us to think kind of rationally when it doesn't get past there, 
right? Because that's, a, that's in a reaction, right? But John, I only make rational decisions. I hear you, but you got to deal with the rational science that says maybe not so much, right? All right. We live in a world that is ever-changing. It's always evolving. You know, I could have had this lesson written by ChatGTP in about four seconds and gone on with the rest of my life, right? And that can be a wonderful thing. On the other hand, I also find that I have an unending stream of things coming at me that, that I get from the various apps and the news sources and, and I hear about all of the things that I should be worried about in an unending stream. Frankly, I'm still trying to reconcile whether I'm better off now than I was, you know, in the 80s as a college student when that's not how it worked. Uh, but nonetheless, it's reality. So this is what we deal with, right? As a financial advisor, what have I seen? Number one. It does not matter how many zeros are on your net worth statement. The way that you view the world, the way that you take in information, the way that it lands in that amygdala, that, that is not a product of how many zeros you have. It's a product of how you view the world. It's many people that I talk to as an, an advisor, it's unconscious to them. They don't recognize that, that they're never going to spend all the money they have anyway. So what's this about, right? What's all the anxiety for? What are we worked up about? Um, the second thing is that inheriting money is not necessarily a great thing. Well, why is that? It's, it's really interesting to me because I observe when kids and grandkids inherit money, they know it didn't come from them. It wasn't their effort. It's not something they created. It's something dad or mom or grandma or grandpa created, and it landed on them. And they know that they were just part of the right family. And it can tend to undermine their own personal self-worth, right? Now, some of us think about that and you go, wow, I should have such problems, right? <laughs> I think I could navigate that. <laughs> I think it was Mae West that said, I've been rich and I've been poor, rich is better, right? <laughs> and certainly there's some truth to that. But money does not give you the emotional resilience that you need to handle life's difficulties. We often encounter shifts in our in our views uh, and I, uh, about money, and I, I had an experience. Um, we moved here from Champaign, Illinois in 2001. Prior to that, we lived in Chicago. And we moved from Chicago to Champaign, Illinois, and I took a job inside a bank. Well, it came time for us to get a different car. We had cars in the sense that they had four wheels and an engine, but you wanted me to park next to you because if I did, your car was gonna immediately look better, right? So there was, a, it came time to get a different car and there was a guy uh, at the bank who was known as a car guy and he took really good care of his cars. And so um, I bought a 1993 Ford Taurus SHO, really pristine. 
loved it. Had a really cool Yamaha engine, it would get it done, right? We went to the YMCA one evening, worked out, somebody got a hold of my keys, they stole it. Short version is the cops found it four days later. When I got it back, it was trashed. I had spent a lot of time making sure that car stayed clean every weekend. And at that moment, it was a shift. I went, what am I doing? This is a car, and look what can happen to it. Why am I spending my energy and time on this? Look, engineers make cars, they design planes. Uh, God designed the human machine how to run on him. Our relationship about money is not really about the money, I would argue. It's about how God works in our lives. You're a church. We're going to offer a Christian perspective about that today. John 15 says what? I'm the vine, you're the branches. Uh, under, uh, you know, the source of joy in our life is God. Ephesians 3.14, understand the height and width and depth and the love of God. Uh, Nicodemus even had to kind of take it from the top and get re-educated about what it meant to have a relationship with God in John chapter 3. We suffer more in our imagination, way more than we usually do in life, right? Um, so we need to understand how God operates. So with that in mind, let's take a look at a kaleidoscope. You know, when we get locked in to a particular way of seeing the world, it's like we have a kaleidoscope, but it only shows one picture. What would happen if we just turn it, if we, if we unlock it and we change it and our view of things shifts? It can still make a beautiful picture, but we gotta be willing to be open to shifting on these things. What is part of that? In 1 Chronicles chapter 29, uh, verses 11 through 13. You're familiar with this. We've, we've talked about it before. Oh, there it is. Uh, you can read it on the screen. This is David, where he's essentially saying, hey, everything belongs to God, right? Uh, and it came from you. Here's another story. Part of it's actually true. The rest of it makes a good point. <laughs> We lived in Champaign, Illinois. Uh, I was studying for an exam that had a 55% pass rate. So it, it was hard. And, but we had kids, and so I needed time on the weekend. So I'd take my oldest son to the McDonald's, and, and I would try to steal some time while he was playing. We'd order a big order of French fries. Years ago, I told a story similar to this. So if you were here then, just smile and pretend like this is the first time you've heard it. But we would, so we'd get the fries, we'd dump them out on the tray, and he runs off and after having a couple of them, and then he, he goes up and plays, and I'm trying to read and study, and I reach over to grab a French fry about the time he comes down the slide. And he comes over and says, hey, those are what? Mine, you bet. Yeah, uh-huh. Now, in a moment, you think, um, it was my idea to come here. <laughs> we got in my car, and you were in my house when we left. 
and I'm the one that plunked down the money for the fries. So let's think about that idea that those are really yours, right? <laughs> Another passage that means a lot to us. Matthew 6, verses 25 through 34. We don't have time to read it. But in my view, it sets up a ridiculous comparison between the, how God values us versus the flowers and the birds. If he can take care of them, what is it that leads us to think that he can't take care of us? And with that, Pam is going to offer some of her thoughts. So I'm an artist. I see the world a little differently in the way that I look at things sometimes. And my husband always laughs at me, like the things that stand out to me or what I notice. So just having that perspective in mind, I'll share. So there's a phrase, in curvatus in se. This phrase was coined by St. Augustine. And it means to be curved inward toward yourself rather than curved outward, kind of open outward toward God and others. And from this state, when we, are, when we are in this place, we begin to use others for our validation, as well as our belongings, our status in the world. We go to all the wrong places. And we do what we do for acceptance rather than from our acceptance and our worth that comes only from being God's beloved. In a class on Christian spiritual for, uh, formation, I heard this phrase, and it just really stuck with me. It says, we are both deeply loved and deeply bent. So true. We're both and. And when, when you live into this belovedness, we can trust the unbending, aligning ourselves with the sunlight of God. I love the way that uh, the forest reminds me that I am free from the hustle of worthiness and enoughness. Our Heavenly Father longs to be the sole source and the soul's source for that worth. When we turn to others for that worth, we will always be disappointed. No person can fill the God-sized hole that lives in the center of every soul. It is also true that covering our body and filling our homes with the trappings and finery of wealth will not fill that God-sized hole or quench that need to prove our worth or successfulness. We wind up where we began, curved in upon ourselves in the smallness of a material world, in curvatus in se. God's invitation and deepest desire is, us, is for us to rest securely in him, to be noticers of his profound and abundant goodness and the love that he has for us. 
Although his provisions can be found everywhere, I often look to nature to remind me of his care. Do you have the slide thing? Ah. So when I see the possibility of an acorn amidst the, the oak trees, I see God. Or when I saw this tiny little bird taking shelter under this leaf from the heat, the leaf that God provided for it, I see God. And if I look closer, second slide, I see, I've if I look closer, I can find the little surprises in the artistry of shadows. And these fill my heart with joy and wonder. Third slide. When I see a flower and I look to the world contained within its center, I am reminded that I am small, but I am enough. God has my details handled, and I have nothing to prove. When I remember that I am God's treasure, I know it is safe to unbend and turn my heart and even my resources toward God and toward helping others. How can I not be generous when I realize all that God has lavished on me, even in a single walk in the forest? I'll close with these words by Julian of Norwich. God is a God who wishes to be seen. He wishes to be sought. He wishes to be expected and he wishes to be trusted. And I would add that we trust when we unbend. And when we unbend, when we unbend, we are in a state of trusting. So. You know, when we think about all of that and how God moves in ways that, that we don't even necessarily realize, it can be dramatic. I remember when we lived in Chicago, I worked at an insurance agency. I was the last guy hired. So guess what happened when they ran out of money? <laughs> I got fired. They did it between Christmas and New Year because they didn't want to ruin my Christmas. <laughs> I was like, thanks? Maybe I would have done something different at Christmas if I had known this was coming. But you know what? I wouldn't change it. It's part of the story of how I got here. And I don't want to be anywhere else. This is awesome. I'm really grateful. We, Pam and I started listening to these meditations uh, on an app called Pause. This was written by John Eldridge. He had to do with it. It's really good. But it helps settle our minds and keep a spiritual perspective. It's just something that we do. Maybe you'll find the same thing. How do I know if I trust? Well, here's a, a, a way of thinking about it in my view. There is sometimes a distinction drawn, accurate or not, between trust and faith. Some people would say faith is doing something when you have no reason to believe that it's actually uh, going to happen, right? 
Not sure that's accurate, but it's a belief. Trust is when you do something, you may be scared, but you have a high degree of confidence you're gonna be okay. Kind of like when you come up on a rickety bridge like that and you go, all right, <laughs> I know people have gone across it, scares me to death, um, but I'm going, right? I'm a little bit afraid, but I'm confident that I'm gonna be okay. For us, for me, when I sat down in front of that Tithely app and I asked myself, what am I gonna do? Some churches would lean into the whole 10% thing, right? Um, you're probably not gonna hear a lot here at North River about that 10% rule, so to speak. Much more, we still have to find our own way of understanding what it means to trust in our finances. So if I'm sitting in front of that Tithely app and I put a number in there and I draw a little bit of a breath and I go, yeah, that number matters. I feel like I'm trusting. It's good for me. It helps. So you may find that helpful too. No one's suggesting you do silly things with your money. Don't donate all of your rent money this month, right? That creates other problems. But just think about what, what might work, okay? What's part of all of this about? Um, given what I do here, I hope that one of the things that comes out of this series is that every November, you can mark it down. We're going to be talking about this because it, it, it's healthy, right? Uh, number two, we can let go of some of the stigma that sometimes comes up in raising the topic. It's just a part of life. Embrace the conversation. Uh, coincidentally, we have been running under budget most of the year. We can handle that for a while. We have reserves. We can't handle it indefinitely. So the other ask, is that you take some time, reconsider as families, uh, navigating all the dynamics and the fear and the chaos in the world and our lives, and find out how trust is articulated for you, particularly when it comes to your finances. Turn the kaleidoscope. See what else pops up. You might be surprised. North River has a long history of generosity. I have every confidence we're gonna continue that. Let's trust God and the plans that he has for us as we go forward in a new year together as a community. Thank you, I give you Jordan Massey. I am so grateful to be at a church where we have elders and elders' wives like their Dakotas. Amen, guys. It's so special. And we're actually sharing the lesson. They had the first two-thirds. I got the, uh, the last third. And uh, we're going to go to Matthew 6 and continue talking about, and I might kind of give a younger perspective some things I've noticed. They were sharing from their perspective. And I, I don't want to share here, starting in uh, Matthew 6, you know, we've done a really good job not mentioning the game so, from last night so far. So I'll just make sure I don't talk about it, all right? But we'll just, we'll just jump right here into Matthew 6, verse 19. Wait, are you all thinking about something right now? I don't understand. 
Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermins do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your what? Your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of lights. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And church, listen to Jesus' words here. You cannot serve both God and money. And we're going to continue on this theme. I'm actually not going to intro much new stuff. I'm just going to reiterate what it really means to have this eye that sees the world to, and sees the world as an, in a way that trusts God and his abundance to take care of us instead of having an eye that sees the world out of scarcity and I have to fight for everything as mine and let money take care of me. You know, I have a unique role here at North River where I get the privilege of getting with a lot of campus men and young professional men. And it's one of the great joys of my life to see boys become men. And, and to see, uh, you know, guys get met on campus to have the word of God transform them. And then over the years to be transformed and to be developed, to develop their character and their faith and their love to follow Jesus and to become like Jesus. You know, uh, one of the biggest tests, though, that I've seen is when men or women, you know, when people graduate from college and then they go get a grown man job. And, you know, they go from not having a job or, you know, working at Starbucks or Chick-fil-A and they thought the $100 paycheck was big. And then I've had this conversation so many times, like, you know, two weeks into work, they get the first seat, Jordan, I got my first paycheck. And they pause. And it's just like, they don't want to smile too big. <laughs> and then they go, am I going to get this every two weeks, right? <laughs> I've never had this much money ever come into my bank account at one time before. And, and in that, there is a, there's something that happens. You know, that first several months, guys, it, it actually is possible. At one point, that will happen, all right? At one point, that will happen. That first several months and years after college is such a crucial season in who you become in your faith. Because not only are you suddenly working at least 40 hours a week and having to build your own personal discipline outside of seeing all your friends on campus every day, and, but suddenly you're surrounded by successful people at work and you're making more money than you ever have before and the whole workplace is built off of the worldly principle that money and success will take care of you more than anything else. You know, our... Our culture tells us that our identity comes from what we do, our job and our success. And therefore it says, we need to trust in money to take care of us because that is the best way to build who we are. Uh, everything, not just for young professionals, it's for all of us, isn't it? Can't all of us feel this in our workplace, in our environments? That our environment and our culture is saying our identity comes from what we do. 
It comes from my job. It comes from what I produce. And ultimately, it comes from how much money I make in my career. And I've seen a lot of great-hearted young people get taken out, not by intense sin or intense doubts, but by the God of money and success. When you start loving God more than loving money, and you start trying to have two masters, you know, something can happen right there where you can go to church on Sunday and family group on Wednesdays, but trust in the God of money every other day of the week instead of trusting in God. And this isn't just for young people, is it, guys? The truth is some of us have fallen into the trap of Satan because the reality is that Satan is fine if you sit in church on Sunday, but money sits on the throne of your heart all the other days of the week. We have to evaluate where are we truly at? Where do I get my identity from? What really, it, what makes me more anxious? Is it my bank account or my Bible? What, what, what gives me more peace? Is it my career or is it my prayer time? What fills me more with love and joy? Is it that I got a raise or I feel more connected with the Holy Spirit? We have to evaluate these things. And I want to I take a moment just to proclaim what is true as a church family. Can we do that? Let's proclaim what is true. Your identity does not come from what you do. Your identity comes from God, just like Pam was just sharing. Money and success will not take care of you better than God. Can we proclaim that together? Money and success will not take care of you better than God. That, that, is, that is unheard of in this world. That, that is rare. That's a beacon on a hill. That's a light set upon so other people can see. This is a different teaching that we did not come up with but was given to us by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Storing up for yourselves treasures on earth is not going to give you a better life than storing up treasures in heaven. Loving and trusting money, what does that produce? I don't have to tell you. We've all experienced it, haven't we? When you make your life all about money and all about success, it produces anxiety and stress and greed and stinginess and apathy towards others. And that leads to disaster. But instead of loving and trusting money, what does loving and trusting God produce? Oh, you've also experienced that, haven't you? How it produces love and joy and peace. And that leads you to true life. And one of the best, I love how John put it, one of the best forming practices you can do to help you become someone that trusts God more than trusts money is to be generous and to give to people in need and to give to the church. You know, the simple practice of every week having money set aside in your budget to give to people in need and to give to the church, week in and week act, that simple act forms you into a person that trusts God at your core more than trusting others. And I, a lot of you know that even more than I do because you've been giving for decades. And just for a moment, uh, I, I want to call the younger generation. Now, I'm going to define that as everyone under 40, all right? That's what we're defining as younger today. Is that okay? You know what I'm saying? If you're 41, I'm sorry, you're old, all right? But everyone, everyone under 40, 
And then when I'm, when I'm 41, we'll talk about everyone's younger under 50. Okay, that's how it's going to work. It's just how it's going to work. All right. So, <coughs> you know, I want to call everyone in the younger generation under 40 to imitate the older generation in their generosity. You know, we are here because of the generosity of the people that have gone before us. I was baptized at this church. God used the campus ministry to literally save my soul. And, but why was there a church here? Why was there a campus ministry here to find me? Well, it was because of your giving. You know, I, I, I got married eight years ago. I got two little kids and I got marriage counseling. I, got, I consistently get marriage counseling and parent counseling. Why was that so funny? I don't know. <laughs> but I, you know, and I get parent counseling from you guys, from people in the church. How do I know the people that take care of my marriage? Where did I meet the people that helped me now learn how to be a dad? It was, it was at this church. And why, was this, why is this church here? It was because of the giving you have given for so long. It was because of your generosity. My whole, now, now listen, our church is not perfect. Like being, being one of the leaders, I not only get to see a lot of the great, but I know what's under the hood. And I know the stuff we gotta work on. But the reality is, my life was changed because of this church. That means my life was changed because of your generosity. And for everyone that's younger, I just for a moment, I want to say thank you to the older generation. Thank you for giving when you didn't know my name. Thank you for giving and just trusting that God would use your money to advance his kingdom. And you didn't know how I was going to do it, but you did it as an act of trust. And now because of that, I am here. Because of that, I am married. Because of that, I have a family that is trying to follow God because you were giving for decades long before I was even met. Sincerely, thank you. Thank you. And now I want to call my generation, all those people that are younger, under 40, right? I want to call my generation to imitate the genero that generosity and to take up our mantle and to say, and to not be those people that were blessed by other people's generosity and not be willing to pay it forward. Because the reality is there's so many teens and amazing middle schoolers in a, just an, in, an entire building full of little kids over there. Our giving today will help them find Jesus tomorrow. Our generosity today will help them have marriages and families tomorrow. I want to encourage all of us to, all of us that are younger to talk to a mentor or someone in your life that is successful at their job but doesn't make their life about their job. Because we have, so many of you are so successful in your careers. And yet I know, I know from my conversations with you and the way you live and the way that you give that your identity doesn't come from your paycheck. Your identity comes from God. Us that are younger that we're learning how to get, like to work hard and make a great paycheck, but not get our identity. Let's learn from the older generation how you did it. Let's ask those questions. How did you make a great paycheck, but not make your life about that? How, when you had loans and you had to get your first car and all that, how did you still give? But sometimes if we're not honest and if we don't open the door for those conversations, they don't happen as much. But the reality is that's the stuff that plagues all of us. Sounds like a good talk to talk about this week at Family Group, amen. 
Let's learn from the disciples that have been successful for decades that didn't conform to the patterns and behaviors of this world. Well, I just want to close out from the Dakotas in our time with three practicals. It's going to be reiterating some of what John just shared a second ago. I'm not sharing anything new, but giving a different perspective. So put it into practice. The first one's the journal or pray. Journal through where you get your identity from and your trust from. Is it God or money? When's the last time you had an honest prayer time, an honest journal time, and an honest evaluation examining where you're at? Let's have that this week. Have a conversation with someone from a different generation trusting in God over money and how that reflects in your generosity. So different generation. If you're someone that's 41, you can talk to 39, different generation. All right. So... I don't know why that I'm talking about that so much. So anyways, so have a conversation with someone, and I want to encourage all of us this week to have a family group on this. Just as a family group, open up Matthew 6, read those passages, and have a good-hearted, man, how can you struggle with putting your identity and money or your career over God? That's a great conversation to have as a family group. Hey, how do you go about, no one is going, you have to give this much and you better whip out how much you give and we're going to all analyze. No, 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 no. But what we need to do is talk about the heart and the principles. So how do you go about deciding how much you give? That's something we can all learn from each other and help each other as a community. And lastly, like John was saying, uh, reevaluate your giving to those in need and to the church. And ask yourself, does this reflect the convictions you see in the scriptures? And I love how John put it. Let's not be a family that says we should give, but because of how great we see God is, we're going to be a family that says, man, I want to give because of how great he is. The reality, guys, this is not an individual decision. We are a collective family that's deciding to live differently in this world. That we're not going to conform to the patterns and the behaviors of this world, but we're going to live out being a family of the new creation and saying our trust is in something else. Our trust is in God, and that's going to be a bright, shining light for how we live. And we have so many examples here in the church of how we give and how we serve. And actually, right now, what we're going to do is I'm going to invite Yolanda Mincy up to the stage, and she's going to share a little bit on, in the terms of stewardship, how she stewarded her gifts, and how, why she loves giving to the children's ministry. So I give you Yolanda. Yolanda. 